Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy. Sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot, who's calmed down this week, actually. And sitting opposite me is Liam. How's it going, my friend? I'm very well, thanks, man. Did you drug him? No, no, didn't have to. Just of his own volition, he's nice and calm His now. hormone level has dropped. Oh, well. And as you can see, he is currently chilled out upon a precipice. Uh, looking bored. So back Until to you, when. Yeah. <laughs> Until the next time. Yeah. He's going to fucking ruin it at some point. Don't you worry about that. Uh, yeah, I've been laughing really hard the past couple of days at the ship that is currently caught in the Suez Canal. Did I send you the link on that? Yeah, you did. Yeah. What is it? It drew a giant dick in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, it managed to draw a giant dick in the Indian Ocean on its GPS plotter and then go down the Suez Canal and get stuck halfway which is absolutely hilarious. <laughs> I particularly enjoyed the, um, there's a lot of photos at the moment of the Egyptian authorities attempting to dig it out and they've got one digger at the moment. <laughs> now, I, lo- I absolutely love Egypt. I love the Egyptians. I've been many, many times, but I do feel sorry for Ahmed, who is the one digger driver at the moment tasked with getting this thing free. I actually saw a, a forum post earlier of a guy who works on ships in the Suez Canal and he said that this doesn't surprise him at all. Because basically, you're not allowed to pilot your own ship down the Suez Canal. You pull up outside, and they send their own pilots and crew over to the ship to pilot it down, because it's notoriously hard to navigate, because it's very narrow. And he said, basically, what you have to do is, when you approach it, you spend two days prior to this crew coming on board, basically nailing down everything on the ship. Because the crew is notorious for coming on board and just robbing the place blind. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently, the pilots are no good whatsoever. So he is completely unsurprised that one has got stuck halfway. It's costing apparently $8 billion a day in trade at the moment because it's got this huge queue behind it of container ships waiting to go through. Jesus Christ. Yeah, quite funny. And But I'm not going to be laughing when the price of everything goes up because it can't get through the bloody canal that is blocked by this single boat. That giant dick is going to be a metaphorical arse fucker indeed. Yeah, good luck <laughs> trying to buy anything, you know, technology-wise, anything coming through from Asia. Yeah, and not everything's going to be set back and at higher prices. Okay, then. Well, let's kick off this week with some film news, as we normally do. First thing I have this Is this going to be more exciting than last week? I've tried to make it more exciting. <laughs> yeah, I, the film news at the moment is um, grim. Really, but there is some decent stuff in there. Actually, there's a lot of new releases being queued up at the moment. First among which, Spiral from the Book of Saw, which is the ninth installment in the Saw horror franchise. So you're thinking, yeah, okay, in Saw With number Chris nine. Rock, I think. Yeah, Chris Rock and Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, they've actually pushed the release date of this forward by a week. It's now going to debut on May the 14th. So uh, Lionsgate, the studio behind Spiral, opted to move up the opening weekend because cinemas in New York and Los Angeles, two of the biggest movie-going markets in the country, have recently reopened. Spiral will open on the same day as Angelina Jolie's thriller Those Who Wish Me Dead. The upcoming film follows an esteemed police veteran, played by Jackson, brash detective Ezekiel Zeke Banks, who's played by uh, Chris Rock, and his rookie partner, Max Minghella, as they take charge of a grisly investigation into Muda, into Mooders? Into, <laughs> there's been a Muda. <laughs> into murders that are eerily reminiscent of the city's gruesome past. Unwittingly entrapped in a deepening mystery, Zeke finds himself at the center of the killer's morbid game. So it's sort of going a bit sideways with the narrative by the seams of that. Although, like I said, I haven't seen the past few films, so maybe they've tried this sort of thing before. But Sam Jackson and Chris Rock, both reliable actors, I mean, might have something going for it, do we think? Well, all I can hope is that when they say return to form for the very first saw, it's not like that leaves a, a wide, enormous margin of incredible scripts potential, I think, because the first saw is pretty good, but it is still kind of a seven light. Yeah. You yeah. Know, so it was it's decent enough and it's got some cool stuff going on for it, but it is still very much, yeah, seven light. So if it approximates that one as opposed to this relentless, continually un- unimaginative, well, you know, quote unquote imaginative barrage of silly murder puzzles and it actually fleshes out character development a bit more and uses a bit more ingenuity in the script, then it might be something to look forward well, to. Well, I mean, you're a resident horror reviewer. Will you give that one a review, do you think? I take it you probably don't have to watch the most recent ones to to keep up with the continuity of the piece. Well, I, I presume hope- it's still Jigsaw up to his same old antics. I would hope not. I actually think that any film in the franchise that doesn't have the capacity to stand alone is bad. Sure, yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that, actually. Yeah, Regardless enough. of what excuses people want to make. 
Oh, we mentioned this one the other week and I did a bit more research into it. There's an article here from NME.com and yes, I'm still surprised they're going. Uh, this is The Northman. This is a Robert Eggers' new Viking movie. Oh, yes, movie. yeah. Uh, the Northman star Ralph Innocent has shared details on it. He's part of the ensemble cast in the Lighthouse Director's follow-up film. And um, he's got some interesting things to say, actually. He said, uh, it's an enormous movie. I saw a four-minute montage of some of the stuff they'd already shot, and I was really blown away. The marriage of Robert Eggers' imagination and Viking folklore, Jesus, man. The Northman is set to star Alexander Skarsgård as Nordic Prince Amleth, alongside Nicole Kidman as Queen Gudrun, and Willem Dafoe as Hema the Fool. Describing a specific scene from the film, Innocent continued, Alexander Skarsgård looks like an absolute beast. There's a scene where he beats this guy in a battle, bends down and rips his throat out with his teeth, screams to the gods and he's got his shirt off. And you think, my God, that's not a bodybuilder doing a scene. That's like a proper serious actor. He's made himself look like some kind of monster for the part. The dedication is incredible. I think it will be a bit of a masterpiece, to be honest. Wow. And Robert Eggers doing a Viking film with Alexander Skarsgård. That's just, I'm really, really up for this, to be quite honest. Um, controversial opinion, even though I've previously given positive reviews to stuff like Mute on this podcast before. I'm not crazy about Alex Skarsgård. Oh, really? Yeah, I think that um, a lot of his other siblings are far more talented, to be perfectly honest with you. But I don't think he's outright terrible. However... Robert Eggers, Nicole Kidman and Willem Dafoe being involved. The Witch was great. The Lighthouse was very good with that director at the helm. That's what puts the stamp of anticipation on it for me. Mm. I just, I've seen a lot of stuff with Skarsgård recently and he's actually left me feeling very cold, to be honest. I know that's a very unpopular opinion. but Well, I knew you'd find a negative somewhere. <laughs> I think Bill's very talented. I think all the Scars guards are pretty talented, yeah. But well, I, just I mean, think, their dad most of all. I just think, you know, if you're going to do the Northern, yeah, the Northman Viking kind of thing, I can see Robert Eggers' eyes, you know, all over that. I can see the, the vision for that. Yeah, he's, well, he, that's the thing. I mean, he has a brilliant command of the New England landscape in both The Witch and The Lighthouse. And if you're dealing with somewhere that has a tendency toward uh, middling weather, let's say we say British-esque weather, <laughs> and uh, sprawling rural locales, then he, yes, he has a very, very good command of that. So I think even transplanted to a Scandinavian setting, he will do the business. I've been looking forward to The Northman since I read brief synopses. Cast is so. great. You know, yeah, you've absolutely. Got, you've got yeah. a guards, you've got Nicole Kidman, you've got Willem Dafoe. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm genuinely hyped. Well, for he that. got a hell of a performance out of Defoe in the Lighthouse. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's he's got good form. So yeah, no, I should be that. watching that space. Um, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the biggest film at the moment that absolutely every single person is talking about. Although, unlike the rest of the podcast, we're not going to go into it in depth, and we're not going to review it either. I'm going to review it at some point fairly soon, probably You're on about the premium the Snyder one. Cut. Yes, the Snyder Cup. Oh, for fuck. All right. <clears throat> the only news article that I've got here on it, I just thought this was interesting. Uh, it's drawn 1.8 million households into watching it on HBO Max in the first five minutes of its release. Of course it fucking has. Which is pretty insane. I watched the original Justice League and I thought it was okay, actually. I know we're not particularly big on superhero movie stuff on this podcast. I thought it was fine. That's the hot take because most people think the original 2017 release is a pile of shit. I know. I'm, I've slated quite a few superhero films. I watched it and thought, yeah, it's, it's about the same quality as the rest of them, which is to say, I don't think they're particularly good, but it's perfectly watchable. Whereas everyone's been clamoring for this Snyder Cut for forever. For some reason, now, they really, really seem desperate to sort of fix and save this film. Whereas I sort of looked at it and went, that's not ever going to be anything more than its component parts, like just about every other superhero film. And thereby, it's fine, but I couldn't really recommend it. Whereas everybody is now raving about the Snyder Cut. So as you are not the uh, the superhero guy, and I've reviewed a few of them, I guess I'll take that on in the premium. But yes, it is drawing in a huge, huge number of streams. You will subject yourself to those four hours. I subjected myself to Monster Hunter this week, mate, for the premium review. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this seems to be my place on the podcast is to take on the ones you don't want to review. If you're going to do so, then I'll oh, we got We're a movie podcast. Come on, we've got to do it. But I totally appreciate it. No, I just it. prefer if you did it because <laughs> I don't want to I know do it. you would. I don't want to do it. <laughs> Yeah, no, I will give that a watch and I'll be reviewing it in the premium, but it does seem to be getting quite a positive response so far. So I'll let you know, I guess. Uh, what else we got here? Oh, there's a new Tom Hardy film in the works. Um, Going to be released quite soon, actually. It's coming to Netflix in 2021. This is called Havoc. 
Uh, apparently, this starts just after a drug deal gone wrong before going on to focus on a lead detective who Tom Hardy is tipped to portray, tasked with rescuing a politician's son. That's a real deep and uh, interesting and concise synopsis there, I know. <laughs> New Tom Hardy film, everyone will be hyped about that as well because the Tom Hardy love continues. We like Tom Hardy a lot. Yeah, I like Tom Hardy very much. Um, I think even the most ardent Tom Hardy fan will struggle to talk favourably about Capone. You took the words out of my fucking mouth, seriously. That film is a, just an, a consummate mess. For any other actor, that would be a bit of a career killer, I think, Capone. Although Tom Hardy's probably got enough ability and hype and he's, he's done so well through the rest of his career where he could withstand something as bad as that. But um, Capone, I think, was just a, a terrible, terrible well, film. Well, it's like, because... Havoc, who knows? It's getting some hype at the moment, I guess, because people just want to see Tom Hardy back on screen not playing I mean, a, an Al Capone who shits himself. Well, yes, this is the thing, because uh, I, I actually... Because I missed Taboo the first time round, but I watched it all at once and reviewed it on this podcast, um, I think it was last year at some point, I believe. But uh, I watched all of that in one fell swoop in the same kind of proximity as watching... Capone and just to see this excellent performance by Hardy in Taboo mm. that's full of like brilliant nuance and he inspires fear and he inspires empathy and he's always just like this Kurtz-like warrior who is intellectual but also incredible, in, sorry, is also capable of extremely lethal violence and then you go to a motion picture where he's mostly shitting his pants and going, there, <laughs> And you just think, wow. Yeah, just... I don't really think it's his fault necessarily. I think a lot of people pin the terribleness of that film on Tom Hardy. And, you know, as we've said a million times, even a great actor can't save a bad script. And I think that it was just such a bizarre angle to come at Capone at. There were parts of that movie where they showed Tom Hardy playing a younger version of Capone. And I remember sitting there watching it going, why am I not watching that movie? Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, that's the movie I want to see. Instead, I've got Tom Hardy... Um, pretending that he's a lot older than he is and wearing a diaper and being completely incomprehensible. And that's quite a hard sell. I think it's, I, I'm my, I'm, I will place a confident bet that the reason for all of that is because the director is one of those guys who goes, I can do art house. Yeah, it was trying quite <laughs> hard, wasn't it? And yeah. failing miserably. But anyway, um, Havoc is going to be Tom Hardy's newest. And I think everyone's going to be hoping for a return to form. I mean, you know, he's, he's such a reliable actor otherwise. I still maintain to this day that his performance in Bronson is probably the best single uh, male lead performance I've ever seen. I just, he completely drew me into that film. I mean, it's Nicholas Winding Refn. So obviously the film's got a lot of things going for it otherwise. But his portrayal of Charles Bronson, just there was something so real and magnetic and incredible about that. You know, when you get that sort of shiver when you see an actor on the top of their game, really like raising the bar, yeah. really going like at a role full throttle and the film is good enough to keep up with them. I just remember watching that and going, wow. And I've rated Tom Hardy ever since. So Capone, a bit of a misstep, but yeah. I'm, I'm really interested to see what he does Definitely. next. My, sure. I mean, my, my, as I said before, my favourite Hardy performance and Hardy movie is Locke. Mm. But uh, yeah, I've got much love for Bronson. It is I still haven't incredible. seen Locke. You know, you've rated it a couple of times. And I've still yet to go around to it. I think it's a magnificent piece of work. Mm. But minimalist cinema at its apex. And to finish off here, I said there's a lot of movies getting release dates at the moment. I've got a big list of them here. I'm not going to go into every single one, but there are some interesting things coming up. Uh, on the 17th of May, there's Nomadland. Oh, yeah, with old uh, Francis. Yeah, that's yeah. getting quite a bit of hype at the moment. The stills from that look quite good. That's definitely one we'll be Yeah, reviewing. I've heard nothing but great things. Uh, 21st of May, this one's got me written all over it. Peter Rabbit 2. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I will review it. And no, I probably won't be happy, but hey, here we go. Uh, 28th of May, Cruella. Oh, what, with Emma Stone? Yeah, this has been yeah. getting quite a bit of flack over the internet for why would you do this? What's the point? But then Maleficent, I mean, I didn't think Maleficent was amazing, but it was okay. And Disney seemed to be really into... Um, why would you do this? What's the point? There's uh, plenty of films that people can just throw that out. Don't single this one out. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Disney seems to be on a, a roll at the moment of taking their famous movie villains and then doing one-offs with those villains. It could be good. Yeah, Emma yes. Stone's fantastic. Yeah, she is. Yeah, I love so her. I'll be I watching that brilliant. for sure. Uh, this is one for you, your horror stuff. The Conjuring 3, subtitle, The Devil Made Me Do It. No. <laughs> I thought, did you like the... I seem to remember you liked the first Conjuring film. Yeah, the first Conjuring was cool. Didn't like the second, no? No. Okay. Fair and enough. I don't like Annabelle and all of that shit. <laughs> fair enough. Well, that's going to be on the 28th of May. Uh, 4th of June, A Quiet Place Part 2. Quite looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm, 
I think, I mean... I think there actually is mileage for a sequel there. I think John Krasinski's got the uh, got the chops in that regard. I'd be surprised if that's bad. Yeah, I, I, chops most definitely, but I just I think that the first film actually ended in a really brilliant and beautiful. I way. I know what you mean. Yeah, it had a really really great. Um, but it did sort of leave scope for it did. where it could go it next. It did. Well, yeah, fingers crossed that it all uh, it it all uh, matched the power of that. Uh, skipping forward a bit here, obviously I'm I'm leaving out a few here because we're getting pushed for time, but. Um, 9th of July is going to be Black Widow. That's getting a lot of hype. Uh, still on 9th of July, Fast and Furious 9. Uh, another one that's got me. I saw the trailer for that. That was fucking absurd. <laughs> uh, 23rd of July, Top Gun Maverick. Oh. I've been very curious to see this for some time because there's no <laughs> way you're going to put that lightning back in the bottle. But, um, the trailer was amazing to me because the trailer looked like they literally remade Top Gun like shot for shot. So what they're trying to do with this, I have absolutely no idea, but I'll be watching it. Um, 13th of August, we got Free Guy, and the 27th of August, we've got Candyman, which I assume is a reboot. So, yeah, yeah. a lot of sequels, a lot of reboots coming out, but hopefully there's going to be some nice little gems in between. Like we said earlier, I think the Northman's got a really good shot of being an interesting art house, you know, well acted Viking movie, which because, I'm more than up for. Because unlike a lot of what you read out, it sounds like an original an idea. Original idea, yes. <laughs> Aren't those nice? Yeah. <laughs> I realise sometimes we can sound like we're getting a bit down on these new releases, but it's because there's so many sequels and reboots. And yeah, it's just nice to see, see some some fresh writing. Yeah, that summary you read of Havoc is obviously very, very, it's the vaguest of vague, mm. but sounds like crime thriller setup plus Tom Hardy that pricks up my ears. At least that sounds yeah. rough. You know, it doesn't even sound particularly original. It just sounds more original yeah. than a lot of the content it's, that's it's, coming out at the moment. It sounds more appetizing to me than all of this franchise continuation. Yeah, I can tell yeah, you that yeah, for yeah. nothing. For definitely. So a lot of stuff for us to review coming up anyway. Yeah. So uh, we're not going to have to scrape the bottom of the barrel anymore and try and find... It has been difficult during the lockdown period as it's got thinner and thinner and thinner to find stuff that's like good original ideas with high production values and et cetera, et cetera. But we've managed to do a few anyway. But it looks like the barrier is about to burst on that. I hope so, because COVID-based art hasn't actually been that great if uh, Songbird and Locked Down or anything to go by. So. <laughs> well, it looks like we're coming to the end. So hopefully some good stuff soon. Yeah. Anyway, um, hopefully we've got some good stuff now because uh, Liam's got a couple of film reviews this week. Uh, yep. What have you got for us, my friend? Yep, so a couple of newbies here. Let's start with uh, what will be last week's write-up when people listen to this. I uh, got round to Judas and the Black Messiah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, the uh, new film by Shaka King. It came out on video demand, I believe it was on March the 11th. And, uh, yes, starring Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield, this is inspired by the true events of Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton was the leader of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. And... As the film opens, we're introduced to William O'Neill, who is a 17-year-old car thief played by Lakeith Stanfield. He goes into a bar, he presents a false FBI badge, and he tries to make it away with his patron's motor, but they clock his ruse, and he's trying to hightail it out of there, but he gets apprehended, he gets taken down the nick. And an FBI agent, Special Agent Roy Mitchell, played by Jesse Plemons, comes in to the interrogation room and says... You've committed Grand Theft Auto and you impersonated an FBI agent. You're looking at six and a half years in prison for all of that minimum, unless you help me out with something. And what Special Agent Mitchell wants O'Neill to help him out with is essentially J. Edgar Hoover, who is played with brilliant vileness in this by Martin Sheen under heavy prosthesis. So I actually read a great quote from someone that said Martin Sheen looks like a bloated Dracula. Right. And it's and it's but it's very but in, in a good way, if you can imagine such yeah. a thing. And it's actually very apt. It suits him. Yeah. It's it's very apt for his portrayal because he's portraying Hoover as the insidious, megalomaniacal, bigoted, horrible piece of shit that he verifiably was. Hoover is paranoid as hell about subversive elements in the country undermining national security and ultimately undermining the American way of life. And he wants agents to infiltrate these groups and to destroy them from the inside out by feeding information back to the FBI and allowing the FBI to tra entrap people and, and eliminate them in more nefarious ways. Well, 
What Mitchell wants O'Neill to do is to infiltrate the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party and get close to Fred Hampton, its chairman, as played by Daniel Kaluuya. Now, Fred Hampton was an incredible figure in real life. He only lives to the age of 21, but during his very short life, he managed to organize the Rainbow Coalition, which is essentially getting white Chicano and black street gangs and special interest groups all over Chicago to unite into one cohesive, anti-racist, anti-capitalist, revolutionary group. So he did a lot for sort of, uh, he did a lot of beneficial things for race relations at the bottom level in the city. And he also started up a free breakfast for children program. He did, he set up free healthcare clinics, which included testing. This was a guy who was very, very community-minded, and he worked very, very hard. He had a really incredible, magnificent uh, sense of civic duty. But the FBI considered him a threat because in a continuation of uh, Malcolm X's preachings, Fred Hampton didn't believe in non-violent protests. He didn't believe in rolling over and letting your enemy kick you until they feel some incredible sudden wave of unprecedented remorse. He didn't think that was coming. So he believed in the people being armed. He believed in the people taking no shit. But it's very much as a last resort. Right, okay. So the film charts Hampton's short but very powerful ascension uh, to the spotlight because he had a very short life and um, his eventual relationship with uh, Dominic Fishback's character who came to bear him his the only child he actually went on to have. And it's, it's a dual examination of Hampton's ideology and the effect that it has on surrounding communities with this duality of um, desperation and fixation that Lakeith Stanfield's character, William O'Neill, is enduring. Because while he desperately wants to stay out of prison, he gets slowly persuaded by Hampton's rhetoric and he starts to feel very remorseful. But at the same time, he's a teenager who does not want to go to prison for nearly seven years. So he's relaying information to Agent Mitchell while simultaneously you have moments of him begging to be let out. And that's juxtaposed with um, Hampton and just his unyielding commitment to his cause. He's willing to die for it no matter how many times the bastards try to kick him when he's down. So it's just a really amazing by-character study, if you like. It's a dual study of these two men, why they are, where they are. Uh, It doesn't saturate the film in too much exposition. You don't get loads and loads of backstory with regard to either man. It just presents it as is, but with enough substance that you don't really need a wave of expository shit. Right, okay. Uh, this uh, this film really, really gave me a wallop, man. I was very impressed by this. I love uh, Kaluuya and Stanfield's performances in this. Everyone is absolutely top-notch. There's not a weak link in this film in terms of uh, in terms of the acting. Kaluuya, he's, he just has that energy. He reminded me of that ferocity that Denzel uh, displayed in Malcolm X in 1992. Just the oratory power and the empathetic anger at what's being done to his community. The way that it, Kaluuya uh, conveys that during uh, scenes of Hampton's fiery speeches, really authentic, really compelling. The whole thing is very, very well shot. Lakeith Stanfield does an absolutely fabulous job of O'Neill's dilemma. He really, really captures the inner turmoil this guy is going through. And I actually saw a couple of interviews where Stanfield said that he needed therapy upon wrapping this film up. And I can completely buy it. I can intuitively see exactly why he'd say that because it's a punishing role. Playing a guy who is pretty much considered one of the worst thinks in history because he did help to take down a Latter-day Messiah a guy who, like Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Gandhi, even Christ himself, was really sincerely trying to do to bring bring a better day for humanity comprehensively, make a society that was fair for everyone. And he meant it. And he was working hard at it incrementally. So it's this real when when you realize that this actually happened and it's been hitherto ignored largely in Hollywood. You had, was it last year or was it released earlier this year? the trial of Chicago 7. Yeah. Because obviously Fred Hampton is pertinent to those events, but he exists on the periphery, as far as I understand. I've got an old man, but I haven't seen Chicago 7, but that's what, that's what I've been informed of. Whereas in this, 
he is front and centre alongside O'Neill because O'Neill lamentably became probably the most instrumental person in Hampton's career slash life, if you like. And it's just, it was a really, really overwhelming work in the best connotation of that word. It made me very angry. It made me very sad. I, I just bought, I mean, you want to talk about a vicarious experience. I was there front and centre. It was not at all like watching Kaluuya and Stanfield. It was watching Fred Hampton and William O'Neill. And I know that that's a bit, quote, whorish. You know, a lot of critics say things to a similar effect, but it's the best thing I can think of to approximate it. Yeah, well, if it's accurate, then... Yeah, yeah. Really, really great, good-looking film. Really, really well-scored film. It hits the emotional notes fantastically. It's a necessarily polemical work. It's a necessarily angry and work with an undercurrent of bitterness running through it because this I mean there are some there's minimal artistic license but by and large this all happened and it's fucking shocking it's shocking in and of itself but it's also shocking that not a hell of a lot of people know about it and hopefully this film will rectify it because it is one of the it's a great it's a great instance of uh, social injustice all in all, but yeah, just with fabulous performances. I really, I, I like both of them. I, I'm a massive Daniel Kaluuya fan. I'd say more strongly love him in Get Out, Widows, um, with Queen and Slim. He's absolutely phenomenal in this, and he just gets better and better. It's, it's really, really worth checking out, man. It's it's an incredible um, true events. Yeah, it sounds like uh, quite hard going in the best possible way. Yeah, it's not. Uh, it doesn't wallow in misery. It just pre- it presents it matter of factly, but it's. I think it's safe to say naturally it's going to be very hard because I won't give away any details to people who'd rather go in with as you know as little information as possible. But the the events that occur, the shit the FBI pulls, is just nothing short of diabolical, and it's all as a matter of fact on record. It's verifiable. They did this shit. You know, this is where the FBI, the FBI under Hoover were, no, they were just a glorified mafia. And uh, yeah, the shit. Yeah, it's quite well documented. Really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, the, and this drives that home pointedly. And uh, yeah, m- m- I mean, props to Martin Sheen as well for just de- demonstrating Hoover as the complete sack of nefarious shit that he was. That's a real, <laughs> so he only turn, he only turns up like a few times in the film, but he makes a, he makes a considerable impact as this like, Ugh, horrible, evil bag of shit. Very, very, yeah, just all, all around. I can't think of anything about this film I would want to change. I was thinking about it for hours and hours afterwards, and that's just, that's always a gold seal of approval. So if I'm not thinking about it for hours and hours, going, fucking no, hell, I can't believe I wasted my time on that shit. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I was sitting around thinking, wow, you know, that, that had a real emotional punch, and it was incredibly believable and the pace was brilliant and the dialogue was brilliant and yeah, just really, really blew me away, man. Really great, really great movie. Fantastic. Yeah. Nice to start off really positive. I've got a funny feeling that uh, looking at the IMDb score earlier, the next film will not be quite so positive. The Seventh Day by Justin P. Lang. This is a new film. (laughs) (laughs) Justin P. Lang, who I've never heard. I love the intro already. (laughs) I I know you can't see him at home, uh, dear listeners, but uh, he's gritting his teeth. (laughs) So this opens in October 1995, and we have an elderly priest, Father Lewis, played by the amazing Keith David of The Thing and other stuff. <laughs> no, and I, such. Yeah. yeah. No, he's been he's been in shitloads of stuff, Keith David. He's, he's a brilliant actor. Uh, he and a younger priest, uh, Father Peter Costello, uh, they've been summoned to the home of a young boy who is uh, allegedly demonically possessed and his frantic parents desperately want the priest to perform an exorcism. So they show up and they try their best. All goes horribly wrong. Father Lewis ends up getting killed. Wow, that is an exorcism gone yeah. badly wrong. <laughs> the young kid doesn't make it either. We can't forward to 2020. So, sorry, I, I hate to press you for details on this because I know you leave stuff out deliberately for spoiler's sake, but how do they both end up dead? I just... Well, the, the priest and the kid. What the, pre, the, what, the priest and the kid who they're meant yeah. to be exercising? Demons. Just demons? Well, yeah, basically. Right. Well, you want me to tell you how they actually die? Well, if it's in the first bit of the film, yeah, I'm just curious. Well, the uh, the demon um, telekinetically, I suppose, uh, 
stabs the priest in the neck with a crucifix. Right, okay. And uh, then the boy, well, the, the demon is inhabiting the boy, but then the demon compels the boy to uh, combust. Wow, okay. So, so yeah, a very bad exorcism then. That's, yeah, you know, just yeah, quite yeah, just very unpleasant. Two out of five stars would not exercise um, again. Yeah, unpleasant for uh, everyone involved so far. <laughs> so yes, Father Lewis dies and the kid dies, and the parents are like very unconvincingly, mind you. These two parents who are seeing their kid burn alive, I was not convinced whatsoever. <laughs> very very overblown. Oh my god, what have you done? But um, yes, Father Lewis's protege, Father Peter, he isn't affected in the incident for some reason, at least not immediately affected in that incident. But 25 years later in 2020, and Father Peter has grown up to be Guy Pierce. And <laughs> Bad uh, luck. <laughs> and, uh, well, I like Guy Pierce, But Father Peter is now 40-something, and this incident has obviously left an extraordinary mark on him. He's very burnt out. He's cynical. I don't really think you see him drinking in the film, but he has that alcoholic flavour about him. Just this exhausted, curmudgeonly, cynical, hate-filled, burnt-out, can't-wait-to-fucking-cop-it soon-enough priest who doesn't really have any time for anybody. Well, he is summoned by uh, this diocese archbishop, played by Stephen Lang. See, I was excited to see Stephen Lang sure, credited, yeah. but he's not in it very much. So his character is imaginatively credited as Archbishop. They couldn't even be bothered to think of a name. <laughs> so everyone, everyone else has got names except Stephen Lang's character. You just call him Archbishop. <laughs> so Archbishop summons Father Peter Costello, as now played by Guy Pierce as an adult, and Father Daniel Garcia, played by Vadhir Dolbez. And he instructs Father Peter to take Father Garcia around the locale and show him the exorcism ropes in light of a rising spate of possessions. And there's one in particular involving a young kid called Charlie who is currently in a secure unit after killing his family with an axe. So Father Peter says to Father Daniel, you're basically, I'll take you under my wing. You know, all those, that, that stuff they show you in exorcism classes about saying however many Hail Marys and all this and the incantations and all that, that's all bullshit. Forget everything you knew in yeah. exorcism school. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's forget everything you knew in exorcism school. So, this Fa is the real world, damn it. Father, Father Peter and Father Daniel are going around and it's, 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 it's basically intersperses the case of this young kid, Charlie, who killed his family, allegedly under the influence of a demon, with Father Peter instructing Father Daniel and also inundating him with this, like, I am older and more experienced than you, so don't fucking tell me what it, how it works because I know how it works and you don't, okay? So, basically... <sighs> This film was a fucking mess, man. This film was an absolute double good mess. First and foremost, um, Vadhir Derbez, who plays the younger priest's father, Daniel Garcia, I didn't buy a fucking word that came out of this guy's mouth. He is absolutely atrocious. There's no emotional velocity there. I didn't believe him when he was meant to be enraged. I didn't believe him when he was meant to be frightened. I didn't believe him when he was meant to be contemplative. Really, really poor all across the board. I like Guy Pierce in a lot of things, but he's really phoning it in. He's, as I said, he's doing it. He sounds like he's doing like this hungover New Yorker accent, you know, like uh, fucking. Oh, I can't fucking be bothered to try a New York accent, but you know, he's he's meant to be doing a grizzled, burnt out sort of thing. You know, hey, hey, I'm exercising over yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, you know, yes, yeah, it's, it's not even really over here. It's more of a. I don't even know what the fuck it is. It's like it's like somebody said, pretend pretend you're from somewhere like Queens or Brooklyn and act like Popeye Doyle maybe would act if he went into the priesthood with his personality intact. You try and do that, and that's essentially what Guy Pearce is doing. He seems to be phoning it in very much in that regard, because I really love Guy Pearce's performances and stuff like The Proposition. Yeah. I think yeah, he, re yeah. he really shines. Yeah, that's fair. I, I made yeah. fun of him earlier, but to be yeah. fair, he has Proposi Proposition and Memento, I would say, would stand out as particularly, f out well, fantastic, or outstanding, just to be tautological. But in this... It's Guy Pierce isn't terrible in it. He just, it's just, oh, okay, it's Guy Pierce kind of doing a New York accent and being grizzled and me, me. There's nothing else to take away from it, take away from it other than that. 
And yeah, the Exorcist, which because it doesn't, this thing, film doesn't seem to be able to decide whether it wants to be a motion picture like The Exorcist, i.e., well, Mark Mode famously described The Exorcist as a, a drama with supernatural elements as opposed to a horror. Mm-hmm. See, I, I kind of tend to err on the side of it being a horror. It feels yeah, like I, horror I would to me. disagree with that, but fair enough. But The Exorcist is very much a, and it is a supernatural horror, but it's a supernatural and psychological horror in that the fear. The Exorcist generates is largely predicated on suggestion. There is visual terror in it when you see what Pazuzu physically does to Reagan and how it appropriates her her corporeal form and her psyche. But the film is not overloaded with jump scares, whereas The Seventh Day seems to be going in a direction of a wannabe exorcist in that it's, you know, it's dark and spooky and there's going to be building dread and, you know, there's going to be a lot of ambiguity and is this person a demon, is that person a demon, you know, something that is heavily atmospheric. But it just, it abandons that for a slew of really, really appallingly executed jump sequences and keeps seems to keep trying to flit in and out of it. It's like, Oh, no, it's just like a really, really bad, corny, appalling sci-fi level, fuck, you know, as in FYFY, mm-hmm. you know, not slagging off the sci-fi genre. <laughs> you know, it's going to be a really bad, you know, sci-fi standard horror film, but then it's going to try and be a bit of a character study again about Guy Pearce and Vadir Derbez's characters. And it's, and it's, oh, it's just absolutely all over the place. The demonic possession scenes, the scenes where you get a glimpse of the creatures that are inhabiting these people, the vocal effects and the makeup effects are consummate dog shit. I I was embarrassed for the people who made it watching it. It is is completely non-scary. It is absolutely risible. And uh, yeah, this film was only an hour and a half long and I was already pissed off with it about 20 minutes in. I was really glad it was over. It's not interesting. It inserts a couple of twists in there, but it doesn't earn. Guy Pierce is collecting his paycheck. That did the best, needs to go back to his fucking day job, whatever that was. <laughs> Stephen Lang probably doesn't mind that he's just called Archbishop because that means, I think, in the future, very few people will associate him with his... This yeah, film. bury that one in the sea. Yeah, because his character doesn't have a name. That might have been a good ploy on his part. So, yeah, I'll take the check, and hopefully people will just excise that from memory. You know? just talk, about, talk about don't breathe and real stuff. Real deep in the credits. Yeah, real talk, deep about, talk about credits, stuff like yeah. don't breathe and, you know, what is it, bloody v, VFX or whatever the fucking name is. Uh, no, it's not that. I've, I've messed up the acronym. It's something like that. But, yeah, Seventh Day... Really, really awful, terrible, not good, not even so bad it's good. Just an absolute crock of pretentious, shoddily made, shite, 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 shite. Don't ever watch it because it's fucking waste of your time, shite. Right, okay. Well, that's fairly conclusive, I'd say. Yeah? Yeah. I, I, think you've, uh, I think you've effectively savaged that one. I can't imagine anybody listening <laughs> is going to go for that at that point. I mean, as you said, not even so bad, it's good, right? Like, there's no, no it's just really no fun bad. To be had. It's just very bad. Okay. No. Fair enough. I wasn't, I'd, I wasn't laughing. I, I would have, see, looking back on it, I describe uh, Vadir Derbez's acting skills as laughable, but I wasn't laughing out loud or even chuckling when I was watching him on screen. He was just really vexing me mm. and thinking, what, what are you doing? You're not acting. You're just, you are just like a fucking lump of wood. It's like somebody just gave you a bottle of vodka and then just like, you know, go out onto that stage and tell, you know, just give your, the most emotional proclamation of your life story that you can. What happens if you do that to someone? They just go out like, you know, it's, they'll think they're being really emotionally impactful, but most people will be sitting there thinking, what are you doing, you fucking idiots? And it just, it strikes me as that. It's this really, really non-effort, non-compelling, non-nothing. It's nothing, it's nothing. <laughs> okay, so okay. We'll leave that one there then. So yeah, it, you really are. It, it is a, a severe split down the middle because Judas and the Black Messiah is fantastic. And this is not. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, there we go. Okay, dokie. All right then, let's do some TV of the week. That was a great review, by the way. I love that. <laughs> oh, I haven't man. seen you spit venom in a while. <clears throat> <laughs> so fucking silly. Yeah, let's see TV of the week. I've got a really interesting series to talk about, actually. Any documentaries this week, or um, if I've got time? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see where the time. <laughs> There's always one in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Starting off with this is called the Head. Okay. 
Um, yeah, and you're right to look confused because I think a lot of people actually haven't heard of this one yet. This is a, a Spanish-made English language psychological thriller series to give it its full designation. Um, and it is set in the South Pole at an Arctic research station. Now, before I get into the setup on this one, um, it's currently being aired on the... There's a Stars Play network in the UK that I'm sure about three people and a dog are subscribed to. I've heard of that. Yeah, it's um, on HBO Max in the US at the moment and Amazon Prime in a... And Stars Play over here. <laughs> well, Amazon Prime in a fair uh, other segment of the world, which suggests to me that it's going to be on Amazon Prime UK quite soon. Yeah. Although, as we always say, I'm sure there's other ways of getting hold of it, okay? So, yeah, let me give you the setup on this one. Set in the South Pole... Uh, we first find uh, all these people at an Arctic research station, Polaris 6, and they are out on the ice having a barbecue. So everybody from this big spaceship-like research station is out on the ice, music's playing, they're flipping burgers, they're drinking beers, they're having a great time because they're celebrating the last day of daylight. After this, everything's going to go dark for a good half of the year, and they're getting ready to pack up and leave because Polaris 6 is going to have a skeleton crew over winter to run it. And it's revealed that they are working on research involving a CO2-eating bacteria that they've discovered amongst the ice. So this obviously has massive ramifications for climate change, etc. Mm. If you could develop this bacteria so it's spread all over the world, it would eat the CO2 in the atmosphere and global warming would be solved. So super important research that they're doing. They're packing everything down. We're introduced to Johan Berg, played by Alexander Willem. And he is the station's summer commander. And he's wandering around the station, having a good time with everybody, partying, packing up his gear. His wife is also on the station, Annika, played by Laura Back. And she's going to stay over over winter to ensure that the station runs properly. So everyone's having a good time. It's a party mood. And everybody's packing up their ship, ready to go, because it's about to get very, very dark and very cold. We then jump six months forward in the timeline. And Johan is coming back on a helicopter. He's got trucks coming out. The winter period is over. He's coming back to set up the station for the summer. And they pull in on this helicopter. They're looking at the site from below and they go, where's the welcome party? Why is there nobody here? And why aren't the generators running? So they land the helicopter. They run up to the doors of the station and they actually, the doors are covered in with snow. So nobody has left this station for some time. So they start panicking. They pull the snow away from the doors. They go inside. And the first thing they're confronted with is a dead body of the winter station commander, and he's been shot in the head, which is utterly bizarre because there should have been no weapons on the station. They're like, who the hell would bring a gun to a research station? He's been shot in the head. There's a hole in the wall. The power for the station is completely powered down. They search around and they continually find more and more dead bodies. In the garage underneath the station, there are normally snow cats these um, tracked vehicles that they use to ferry things across the ice. One of them is missing, and the other one is burnt out entirely with a burnt-out dead body in front of it. So they continue searching around. They continue finding dead bodies. It goes very aliens at this moment. It's you know going up to a, an abandoned facility. Something's gone horribly wrong. It's dark. There's flashlights everywhere. They're trying to get the power back on. Yeah, yeah. They eventually manage to make it into the kitchen where they hear a rustle and a movement and they open one of the kitchen cupboards to find Maggie Mitchell, played by Catherine O'Donnelly. She's alive, and she's shaking, shuddering. She's covered in blood, and she's got a knife pointed outwards. And they convince her to come out of the kitchen cupboard where she's hiding and attempt to interrogate her. Unfortunately, she's got what they refer to as T3, which is sort of a polar madness. It's like cabin fever. She's obviously been through a hell of a lot of stress. She's suffering from like PTSD, if you like, although T3 seems to be the polar designation for it. Right. Yeah. And as a result, the doctor that came with him says, look, to, uh, to Johan says, look, you, you can't really push her too hard. She's, she's suffered such trauma that she's blotted out these memories, which of course is a great plot device because she can only remember fragments of what happened on this station. So they find six dead bodies, Two people unaccounted for, and Maggie appears to be the only survivor. Johan is, of course, incredibly concerned about what's happened to the station, and particularly concerned about his wife, who is one of the missing. Her body isn't even on the station. And so he begins to question Maggie, and Maggie's memories are played out through flashbacks as to what exactly happened to Polaris 6 and how everything could have gone so incredibly wrong. And that's where I'll leave the setup. 
So one of the nice things about this is that it directly references the thing. And one of the flashback sequences, one of their winter rituals, is as the winter season, the yeah, darkness falls, they all sit down together and they watch the thing. It's like a, a, you know, a ritual every time for the fact. I like that. That's yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. I thought it was quite nice, like to deal with that sort of head-on. You got this idea that everyone's trapped there. People are getting whittled down to actually go. No, we're actually going to directly play the thing. I thought was quite clever. You've got these flashback sequences. You've got that sort of claustrophobic atmosphere that is very obvious. It's a very obvious route to take it down. But one of the things this show does really nicely is that it correctly identifies that polar research stations are essentially like spaceships. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got the incredibly unforgiving, unsurvivable environment outside. You've got a very high-tech facility that you have to live inside. Everybody gets a bit too close. There's real callbacks to things like Alien and Aliens and uh, 2001 and every other sci-fi, space station, claustrophobic, horror, terror, thriller thing. It's directly pulling from those in a really wonderful kind of way. Um, some people had some problems with this in the it's probably unsurprising to say that there are twists within the narrative. There's six episodes and obviously there's a twist and a reveal in every single episode. And there is a final twist at the end, as you would expect with a thriller. I don't think I'm giving anything away by even suggesting that. Some people were disappointed with the twist at the end and said that they saw it coming from a long way off. I thought the show actually did a really good job of twisting and turning in such a way that the obvious twist is perhaps the twist they get to at the end, but there's a subversion of it and there's another one running underneath as well. I basically spotted half of it coming. And all the way through, like a good murder mystery, I doubted my theories. All these skeleton crew that are left on this research station are at points all in the picture as potentially the person that's causing things to go horribly wrong. And so you've got that lovely thing of constantly double second guessing, double guessing. Is that a double bluff? Is that a triple bluff? Was that guy over there doing this? That guy over there looks shady. It's got a really nice way through that claustrophobic space horror lens, even though it's not set in space, making you doubt your guesses on the narrative. It's a really effective writing. Um, and some people criticize this as well for being hackneyed in the sense that, oh, you know, it's just another thriller horror stuck in isolation thing. I thought it was actually a really fresh take on the idea. I thought it had a real zing to its narrative. I thought the pacing was really, really good. I thought it flowed nice and evenly throughout. There was no point where I felt like the writing was falling off a cliff. There's reveals and hidden motives and things in there. I mean, this is one of those ones where, like, every single person on the station has got a hidden backstory. So, you, you know, quite unbelievably, but then it's a murder mystery. It's, you know, it's, it's a classic of the genre. If they're all sitting in a, a haunted house over winter, you know, then it would be a similar thing. The fact that it's out on, in the Arctic research station actually adds something to the narrative because there's uh, points where they actually have to fight the environment and they've got things to consider that an ordinary murder mystery wouldn't necessarily consider because it would be set within a you know a, an idyllic locale or something like that. They've actually got the the sheer force of nature coming in upon them at the same time. And there's this constant discussion of PTSD, T3 syndrome. Are we getting cabin fever? Are we going mad? So you're constantly doubting every single character's intentions, which I thought was really nicely done and well balanced. It's a really good show, this. I mean, it's a miniseries. Poirot on the Nile sounds very cosy by comparison. You can make a direct comparison. Yeah, a, a, a cruise ship going up and down the Nile or a... It doesn't really matter the locale in most of these. Yeah. Yeah, Poirot famously flits about from locale to locale. The fact that you've got this suffocating ice coming in, much like I reviewed The Terror the other week. Yeah. That's a great way to throw characters into... The, it's like the old trope of trapping characters in a lift. Because eventually something must happen. If you want to focus on... You remember that Breaking Bad episode where Jesse and Walter are stuck in the laboratory? Oh, with the flies. And the flies, by the way. I, th- yeah. I thought that was a great episode. It's an old trope, but trapping your characters so they can't get out means that they have to deal with each other. And so those infinite layers of human complexity are suddenly spread wide and made vivid. And this is what this show does. Just don't do it like M. Night Shyamalan did in Devil. Yeah. That was terrible. And, you know, it's twisty, it's turny, it'll make you second guess, it double bluffs a lot. Um, A lot of people were disappointed with the conclusion. I actually thought the conclusion was totally and utterly fine. I don't really know what more you want to expect from writing of something like this, um, other than creating a, a... Yeah, it's got a twist that's easy to see coming, but there's another one underneath it you probably didn't. 
And so, that's good enough for me. So all in all, a solid mystery thriller. I really, really like this. Yeah, I think the main problem with it at the moment, the reason people aren't talking about it more is because it's got such a limited release at the moment. Like I said, in the US, you're probably fine because if you're really into your media and you know, if you listen to this podcast, you obviously are, then you're probably considering an HBO Max subscription because of all the movies that are about to come out and it's soon. Uh, in which case, you're going to get the head. And I think that's uh, a real bonus, actually. I think that's something you can recommend to convince people to buy a subscription. You know what I mean? But I, I think this is a really effective piece of work. Um, I was very surprised to find out that actually a lot of it was filmed in Tenerife. Really? <laughs> yeah, the exterior, sh- the, <laughs> exter- the exterior shots they filmed in Iceland, but the interior stuff was filmed in Tenerife. So they've done a really good job with the sets as well, actually, because it definitely looks like a, a polar research base slash spaceship slash, you know, whatever. So yeah, I actually, I thought this was a really, really good piece of work. And I think as it gets a wider and wider release, many, many more people are going to be talking about it. Well, yeah, because what you said at the outset, I mean, being on Stars TV, that's kind of like being on Nuts TV, isn't it? Yeah, so I, only, I don't only know anyone that's got a Stars place. Only weirdos yeah. who are up at three in the morning are going to be watching well, that. Well, that's me. Yeah. Right? <laughs> even, even I don't have a Stars place subscription. Maybe I might, because Stars have done some okay I stuff. Mean the, I mean, like the weirdo weirdos. The, as I said at the start, the fact that it's getting an Amazon Prime release and lots of other places in the world suggests to me that it's going to be eventually when exclusivity rights die off and you know, they might have a three-month exclusive or whatever, it's going to get some major network pickup. You might even... I can see someone like BBC buying it as a limited run because it's only six episodes. It's a miniseries. And it's very compact and tight. It's I can't see any future sequel for it. It is what it is. And I like that. It's neat. It's neatly done. You made it sound interesting enough to me. Yeah, yeah. If, if you like the thing, if you like aliens, if you like all that, it's it's got all of that going for it. And it's a murder mystery as well. It's quite well written. So there you go. Cool. Um, yeah, we do have time actually for a, a quick little docu series. Actually, this is sort of the mother of all docu series. A while ago, someone talked to me about making a murderer, and they said, "Have you seen the staircase?" Oh yes. And I said, no, I was aware of it. And it keeps popping up in my feed, but I'd never watched it. So you need to, if you like Making a Murderer, you need to watch this because it is everything that made Making a Murderer brilliant except more of and deeper. You didn't watch the jinx though, like I told you. No, I've still yet to get around <laughs> Sorry about that, dude. Um, but yeah, so I thought I'd give The Staircase a go. This has a really, really simple setup. This is a documentary crew, a French documentary crew actually, who started to follow the trial, well, the case rather, of a man called Michael Peterson living in North Carolina. And the way Michael Peterson tells it, what happened to him is that he was living in his lovely house, a very successful writer, living in this lovely, beautiful, quite ornate house um, with his wife. He was sitting outside by the pool with her, having a drink and a smoke and a chat. Everything was fantastic in his life. She went in upstairs and then didn't come back for a while. And when he came back into the house, he says that he found her Uh, at the bottom of the stairs, bleeding horrifically. Had a terrible, terrible fall. So he called 911. 911 came out. There's nothing they could do for her. She was already dead. And the DA took the position that she couldn't have possibly sustained such horrific injuries by simply falling down the stairs. Michael Peterson must have murdered her. And so the trial begins. So super simple setup, right? You think you think that's okay. So that seems like a relatively easy case as far as these true crime murder mysteries go. I have never seen a docu-series go into a case like this in such depth. The amount of footage this series has is quite insane. It's got literally every single aspect of the case blown up and writ large for the audience. It's got the forensic teams doing their thing. It's got the defense team discussing their various defenses. It's got Michael Peterson and his interactions with his family, the documentary crew actually followed him and his family around while he was awaiting trial. It's got um, him being coached by a voice coach as to how to speak in a court trial. It's got things like uh, the, the lawyers actually setting up the case, going into the courtroom the day before and running through the slides. There's actually a really funny bit in it where the, his defense lawyer is trying to get the guy who runs the slides to put them up in the correct order. And the guy keeps getting it wrong. And the lawyer keeps getting more and more frustrated with it going, I just want you, I just want you to know, I really fucking hate you and I hate this fucking system you're making me use because it's terrible and it's ruining my fucking life and it's ruining my case and we have to do this tomorrow. And then the fire alarm goes off and they have to evacuate the building. Like, I've, I've never seen a docuseries go into a case with this much depth and this much footage. It really is quite insane. You really get every single nuts and bolts piece of the process. And of course, I mean, this is in total, this is 13 episodes, 
all around about an hour long. Some of it was shot initially. Some of it was shot back in 2016. And the most recent episodes were shot in 2018. And again, you think, well, how much mileage can you possibly get out of one guy's case of did his wife fall down the stairs or did he do something nefarious to her? But the twists and turns within it just make you hold your head in your hands in absolute horror. There's like an existential dread element to it of, oh my God, what if this happened to me? And the amount of bullshit, the amount of, it's very much like making a murderer. It makes you hold your head in your hands and go, the American justice system is fucked. Because you're watching it going, this seems so plain and so obvious. And obviously, documentaries are one-sided. They kind of have to be. It makes an attempt to be both sides. But the prosecution, obviously the DA office and the government prosecuting, didn't really give them the access they wanted. So obviously, it's following more of Michael Peterson and his defense. But you just hold your head in your hands with this thing and go, how could this possibly go as wrong as it did? There's a twist and a turn in every single episode. And it's quite heartfelt and it's quite... I find it very emotionally powerful and emotionally resonant. This is like the mother of all true crime murder mystery cases. And it sounds so simple. It's actually quite a hard one to sell on this podcast because people are going to listen to this and go, yeah, well, that doesn't sound like a particularly interesting case. Oh, wait for it. Because it's the minutia that they go into. That's the interesting thing. I've never seen a legal case blown up this large before and with this much attention and care put upon it. It never loses its sort of thrills and chills and it's uncomfortably real. And there's points where I almost have to pinch myself and remind myself that I'm not watching a piece of work that is attempting to look like a documentary. I'm watching a documentary because some of it's just flat out funny as well. Some of it's just no way. No way would that happen in real life. Actually, sounds, you are watching real that life. That thing lawyer sounds straight out of some sort of force. It's hilarious. So. Yeah, it's really, really funny. But yeah, you keep watching and thinking... I, I maybe I've sort of ruined myself by watching too many sort of parody docu-series because that's done so often these days. Right, Parodying yeah. reality TV and things like that. You do have to remind yourself of points that this is real life. And that whole thing about truth being stranger than fiction is definitely a huge play within it. I really highly recommend The Staircase. It's um, It sits head and shoulders above just about every other Netflix true crime documentary I've watched. And I mean, how many of them are I rated on this podcast? So to me, that yeah, that's a... A huge commendation, I think, for this. It is the granddaddy. And if you like this sort of stuff, you're doing yourself a disservice by missing out on it because it it's just so comprehensive and it needs to be seen by more people, I think. I've actually been told about this by several people who have attested to how amazing it is, but I regrettably have not watched it yet. But I'll tell you what, I'll do you a deal. I'll watch that by this, by this time next week and you watch The Jinx and tell me what you think of The Jinx. Okay, deal. Remind me because I'll forget, but okay, deal. Cool. Deal. right well that brings me on to trivia for the end of the podcast and i found myself between a rock and a hard place this week oh boy because (laughs) i can't do anything based on the head yeah polar explorer trivia we've done that with the terror recently um what am i supposed to do with the staircase people who fall downstairs i mean that was never going to be a a mind to be uh to be exploited was it and um yeah well i'm sorry liam but i did um exorcism trivia well that's got to be better than the seventh day well yeah we, we've done trivia on your least favorite thing you've covered this week basically it's it's the only route to take and so i've taken it so would you like some real life in air quotes exorcism trivia why not why not why exactly not? please don't say no it ruins the end of the show <laughs> okay let's have some exorcism trivia then. let's start out with this one the word exorcism derives from the greek word for oath exousia as religious studies scholar james r lewis explains in his book Satanism Today, an encyclopedia of religion, folklore, and popular culture. I must get hold of a copy of that. To exercise thus means something along the lines of placing the possessing spirit under oath, invoking a higher authority to compel the spirit rather than an actual casting out. This becomes clear when the demonic entity is commanded to leave the person, not by the authority of a priest, but instead, for example, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Vatican first issued official guidelines on exorcism in 1614 and revised them in 1999. According to the US Conference of Catholic Bishops, signs of demonic possession include superhuman strength, aversion to holy water, and the ability to speak in unknown languages. Other potential signs of demonic possession include spitting, cursing, and excessive masturbation. Well, by that logic, I'm a demon. Well, we knew this already. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think that's very fair. Excessive masturbation seems a bit, you know, everyone likes a little bit of alone time, don't they? Yeah. Fuck's sake. Jesus Christ. 
We almost made it a whole way through a podcast without a masturbation reference. And there we go. There's one in the trivia. Uh, people aren't getting away that easily. <laughs> this is quite a dark one. In fact, a lot of these are dark. I do apologize, but it was the only route I could take. <laughs> Not fun, but interesting. They're also bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is quite a nasty one. Uh, in 2003, an autistic eight-year-old boy in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, was killed during an exorcism by church members who blamed an invading demon for his disability. In 2005, a young nun in Romania died at the hands of a priest during an exorcism after being bound to a cross, gagged, and left for days without food or water in an effort to expel demons. And on Christmas Day 2010 in London, England, a 14-year-old boy named Christy Bamu was beaten and drowned to death by relatives trying to exorcise an evil spirit from the boy. Pretty horrendous fact, that one, but quite interesting. I mean, yeah, it sort of yeah. follows logically. So people, it? yeah, people dying horrible deaths because of bullshit. Yeah, what is often regarded uh, later on by actual doctors as psychosis. Yeah. But blamed on religious reasons and often tortured to death, unfortunately. Sweet dreams. In 1974, Yorkshire man Michael Taylor was the subject of an exorcism that lasted throughout the night. Although the priest completed the exorcism, Taylor still went on to strangle his dog and kill his wife. He was found naked and covered in blood on the street. Taylor's exorcist claimed that although 40 evil spirits had been excised, some still remained, including the demon of murder. How convenient. I don't know, it mostly worked. It was just that I missed out the demon of murder. Whoops. <laughs> Where was this again, sorry? Yorkshire in uh, 1974. In 1974? Yeah, yeah. Where were the... There were things such as secure units then. Yeah. Where the fuck were the local authorities? Yeah, kind of crazy, right? In ancient Mesopotamia, people believed that any kind of sickness was the result of a powerful spirit entering the body and attacking the individual. Assyrian tablets show references to not only incantations and prayers to the gods, but challenges made directly to the demons, who are believed to be the cause behind physical and psychological diseases. Babylonian priests in ancient times would destroy a wax or clay image of a demon during rituals. Oh. So as you said, you know, you'd expect that back in ancient times, wouldn't you? That would make, you know, pre-science, pre-the Enlightenment, you'd expect that, yeah, okay, that makes sense to these people. In 1974 and later, though, <laughs> you'd think people would have given up on this by now, wouldn't you? Yeah. And can I just say, all of this is, by and large, a lot more interesting than the film I discussed. So... <laughs> It's not a bad trivia pick, mate, you know. I have to talk about, obviously, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which is based on records of a 17-year-old German schoolgirl named Annalise Michel. In 1968, Annalise began to shake uncontrollably and she was diagnosed with grand mal epilepsy. Severe depression followed these fits and soon after the attacks began, she started to experience devilish hallucinations. She and her family as well began to believe that she was possessed. She reported hearing voices telling her she would stew in hell. It was said that she bit the head off a dead bird, barked like a dog for two days, ate spiders and coal, performed 400 squats in a day, and frequently ripped her own clothes off. Annalise underwent 67 sessions of exorcism to rid her body of the evil spirits. The last day of the exorcism rite occurred on June 30th, 1976. At this time, Annalise was suffering from pneumonia. She was emaciated, running a high fever, and unable to physically perform the genuflections, the ritualistic kneeling herself. Her last words to the exorcist were, beg for absolution. And to her mother, she said, mother, I'm afraid. Annalise died the next day. The official cause of death was starvation. Post-mortem, psychologists suggested that Annalise suffered from psychosis and that proper medical intervention could have saved her life. Annalise's parents and the two exorcists were found guilty of manslaughter, a verdict reached during, due to negligence and failure to get Annalise the aid she needed. And the last bit of this very deep and dark and interesting trivia this week. In 1997, Mother Teresa was hospitalized in India for cardiac problems. Archbishop Henry D'Souza also happened to be at the same hospital at the same time. He said that he witnessed changes in Mother Teresa when day turned night. Calmness turned to extreme agitation and she would pull out her wires and monitoring equipment. He believed she was under an evil influence and, with her permission, he sought out an exorcism for her. Afterwards, the Archbishop said that she had no trouble sleeping at all. So there you go, Mother Teresa received an exorcism. <laughs> You'd think she'd have holy protection, right? Well, Christopher Hitchens uh, did several interesting exposés of Mother Teresa and uh, she 
she was actually a bit of a nasty person, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. I know that there's a lot of people would consider that a very sacred cow, but she weren't that great, mate. Yeah, so, no, I've, yeah, I remember reading the Hitchin stuff on her, and um, yeah, making sure people were put into Catholic. Yeah, we're moving them large distances to make sure they were going to Catholic homes. She actually had sort of a very uh, her personality was predicated from largely on it's like she had a sort of very quite a dangerous pathological narcissism, a lot of abusive power and control. Mm terrorizing people just very unpleasant yeah so yeah well that's the end of my unpleasant trivia <laughs> i try and make it light but it's quite difficult with exorcisms at the very least i hope people have found them interesting and informative uh, and that brings us to the end of our show this week we're off to go and record the premium mix bag this week we're back to sort of mixing it up we've done quite a few specials in a row now so uh, i'm going to review monster hunter god help me uh liam you've got a couple of extra takes what are you reviewing this week uh, yeah, uh, going to be reviewing a couple of first-time watches, which are Moonlight and uh, Death Watch. And I've also got a little So Bad It's Good. I'm going to be talking about a little favourite from my teen years that used to scare the shit out of me, but watching it in recent years it just makes me laugh a lot. Okie dokie. Well, if you'd like to join us for our premium content, please do check out cinementalist.com. Um, you can follow us at Cinementalcast. You can follow Liam at... Um, Liam at the movies at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. Excellent. And uh, yeah, hope to see you on the premium one. If not, we'll see you on the free one next week. And all my written bullshit is on the website. Oh, yes. And please do go to cinematist.com, click on the Wacko Jacko blog button to read Liam's written reviews. And I highly suggest it because they're very well written. Thank you very much. Okie dokie, then. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, See you in a bit. I'll see you next week. Cheers, people.